Welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, where we plumb the depths of the runner's soul and strive, strive to understand the striving and strive to understand a better version of ourselves. Dead he was, a terribly happy guy, and Ned he ate a moldy pumpkin pie, and then he thought that he just couldn't die, so Ed, Ned, Fred, he's not dead, he laughed so hard that it made him cry. Hey, people. How are you? Well, I'm tired, man. I was out in San Diego this week as my abundance tour continues. Since we last talked, I was in Phoenix, came back home and drove down to the Cape to see Steve, and then was back on a plane out to San Diego this week. And this week, I'm going to be in Boston, but I do have a conference in the city that I'll need to either drive into or go sleep in the city for a couple days. I'm speaking at this one, so I have to come up with a a talk and get ready for that. Then the following week, I'm back out in San Diego for another week-long conference that will require me to leave on Saturday or Sunday morning or something like ridiculous like that. So when I came off my epic adventure out in Portland a couple of weeks ago, I woke up to find all this travel and stuff going on. And I'll be honest, it stressed me out. This time of year is when all of the conferences happen in my industry. And it's not hard work, but you're on all the time and talking to people. So you don't get many breaks. And many times I'll be out late entertaining and up early for these events. And it can wear you out if you don't pace yourself. But I thought about it, and I remembered how lucky I am to be able to do all the things that I do and decided to try to rewire my thinking process. I decided to call it the Abundance Tour 2015, you know, like a rock and roll tour. And I'm going to get t-shirts made with all the venues and the dates on them, right? Eh, it helps a little bit, but I'm still exhausted. So I managed to get out and run almost every day last week in Phoenix, including one of my favorite runs whenever I'm out there is to run up Camelback Mountain before the sun comes up. In one of the days, the event had uh, actually had an impromptu 5K, which was fun for me. And I just treated it as a fun run and chatted up clients because I didn't want to be, you know, that guy, that guy who tries to hammer everybody else in a fun run. But this week in San Diego, I was unable to get out at all. I was unable to do any of my daily practice, and it bothers me. But I'll be back on the bus soon enough. So today, by the way, welcome to the Run, Run, Live podcast. (laughs) I believe this is episode 4-321. That's kind of cool, huh? 4321. And today we will have a recording that I made sitting at the table in my Cape Cod house with Steve Chopper. Steve is cycling from Concord, Mass, down to Yorktown on a folding bicycle. And he's calling it the American Revolutions Tour. And I met him as he was cycling down to my place from Provincetown, and we rode 50 or so miles on the Cape Cod Rail Trail, showed him around a little bit. In the first section, I'm going to talk about something that came up this week, which is the situation where people have bad workouts 
late in their race training cycles, and it freaks them out. (laughs) So we'll talk about that. And in the second section, I have a piece that tries to summarize my current reading and current learning, current understanding about how to access deeper portions of your brain, your mind, and potentially the universal mastermind. So the thing I discover about myself with these conferences is how much of an introvert I am. Having authentic interactions with other humans all day long and all night is exhausting. But I've been practicing. (laughs) I've been practicing trying to actually listen to people instead of waiting to talk and trying to ask questions instead of just trying to demonstrate how smart I am in conversations. And when you do this, amazingly enough, it's not as exhausting. When you let go the need to make some sort of competition out of it or sell something, you can connect with people better, and people remember you, and you remember them. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Am I ready for my goal marathon, my goal race? It has never ceased to surprise me how emotionally wrapped up people get at the end of a training cycle when the race itself is in reach. By the time they get to the end of a training cycle, they are so emotionally invested in the process that they become totally beholden to the plan. They essentially lose themselves in the training plan. The way it manifests is that Late in the training plan, a workout goes badly. Maybe it's a long run they can't finish. Maybe it's a workout that just didn't feel good. They couldn't make their times. Maybe it's a small pain of some sort or the threat of a head cold. And the coach or whoever will listen gets the call or the email that is just dripping with desperation. I couldn't finish this workout. Does that mean I won't be able to meet my goal race? You know, my race goal. It's all slipping away. I'm lost. And let me ruin the surprise for you. No, it doesn't have any bearing at all on your ability to race. You'll be fine. Relax. Focus on your taper and and your race execution strategy. Chill the heck out. (laughs) One or two bad workouts at the end of a long and difficult training cycle doesn't mean anything, except that you're probably pretty tired. Your body has hung in there through the long weeks of miles and effort. Now in the final weeks, it's getting a little weary. That's perfectly okay and perfectly normal. That's what your taper is for. Your taper is your body's opportunity to bounce back and gather strength for that battle. Most training plans for a distance race will be, you know, 14 to 20 weeks long. And if you make it through the final weeks and consistently do the work, the last couple weeks aren't going to make a difference one way or the other. If you're less than, let's say, four weeks out from your race, you've already got 90% of the work. And got 90% of the benefit, if not more. As my coach always tells me, the hay is in the barn. There's nothing left to do but relax. Those last couple weeks don't matter that much. And even if they did, there's nothing you can do about it. The absolutely worst thing you can do is to try to make up for the bad workouts by cramming in some more. Some more workouts, some more distance, some more intensity. More distance and intensity is not what you need at this point. Don't do it. Back off, relax, taper, chill. Let me tell you a couple of stories. In my late 20s, when I was first getting back into running, my mom told me about a new race that year. 
it was the inaugural Groton 10K. I set what I thought was a reasonable goal of running it in sub-8-minute miles and created a plan to get there. This was way before I really knew how to train. And the culminating workout was going to be a test run of the course the weekend before. And on that day, I remember showing up, and I was coming off a red eye from California, and I went down to run the course, and it was awful. I couldn't hold my pace. I ended up walking in spots. My goal seemed very uh, far out of reach. For the rest of the week leading up to the race, I was in a foul mood. I was grumpy and mean to everyone. Inside my head, I was super scared and angry that this last workout showed that I didn't have what it took to run my race or meet my goal. You see where I'm going, and you see what's coming, don't you? When I got into the race, everything went great, and I easily beat my goal time. Why? Because I had trained for it, and that last workout had nothing to do with my ability to run that race. A few years later, when I had actually learned how to train, I remember being in Dallas on a business trip, and I was kicking off my training program to requalify for Boston. And it was the first or second week of the training plan after I had taken a few months off after my last race. And I looked at the satellite map, and I found a running track a couple miles from the hotel, and I figured I'd run over there, do some speed work, come back in the afternoon. And again, with the jet lag and the heat, it was awful. I couldn't hold the paces or do any of the work. I had to walk away from the speed work and limp back to the hotel. Now, did that workout have any meaning in the training cycle? No. I ran a couple days later when I got home on a cool day, and I crushed my workout. Did it have any impact on my end goal? No, not in the negative sense. It did actually help me to put in context, perspective, the fact that you will have both good and bad workouts. It's really not the workout that matters, but how you bounce back from them and how you mentally manage them. When you finally show up for the race, even if you have had a few bad workouts, even late in the training cycle, there is this thing that happens called the marathon miracle. It's when your body forgets everything else and is in the moment. Don't ever underestimate the marathon miracle. When these workouts go badly late in the training cycle, it has a larger negative mental impact than it should. You're looking for an exclamation point to put on your training to carry you with positive momentum into your taper. Instead, you get an, oh, crap, and you start feeling sorry. You start to worry. It's the uncertainty. You counted on that last positive ending, and you didn't get it, so now you have uncertainty and fear. And your initial reaction is that there is something that needs to be fixed, and you want to do something to fix it. Resist that temptation to do something more or something different. This is not the time to mix in some workout you've never done before into your training. It may seem hard, but you have to stay the course and not overreact or overcorrect. There's nothing you can do about those bad workouts. It's too late to worry about them, so instead, focus your energy on the task at hand. Focus on your taper. The taper is a great time to gather your physical and mental energy. Not only are you reducing the volume of your training drastically to let your body recover, you should also be dialing in your nutrition and your stretching. Use that reduction in volume as an opportunity to get healthy, energized, and flexible. The taper is even more of an opportunity to get your mental game in order. 
Practice sitting quietly and visualizing the race and how you expect it to go. Focus on those moments of truth. There are a few common moments of truth to all long races, and there will be some specific to the race you're running maybe. What are the common moments of truth? The beginning of the race is a moment of truth. You'll be excited and jacked up at the start of your race. Visualize how you will be calm and relaxed and serene at the start. Visualize how you will be in control and filled with the strength of your training. When the race starts, another moment of truth, you might get boxed in, crowded and jostled. It'll be hard to get on pace. Visualize yourself not getting freaked out by the crowd and the fact that you're only running 12-minute miles in the first mile. But instead, take your time. You're finding your way in a controlled and intelligent way to your pace. In the start of the race, because of the adrenaline, you may be tempted to run too fast because it feels easy. So, so take the time in your taper to visualize yourself breathing calmly and staying on your planned pace with control and discipline. And then probably the biggest moment of truth is when you get into those high miles and things get hard. Maybe you hit the wall at mile 20 or whatever. You'll be physically and mentally at your weakest at this point, and you'll be tempted to give up. So this is probably the most important one. And you have to visualize how will you react when this hard part comes and create a movie in your head and replay it throughout your training and taper of how when that moment of truth comes, you're going to smile. And that smile is going to trigger you to relax into the discomfort and run as strong as you ever have. A couple of bad workouts, especially late in the training cycle, have no bearing on your race. If you have done the training, the race is yours to run. Choose to run it well. Decide to run it well and get your mind and body focused around that mission. And now for today's featured interview. So Steve, where are we? We're sitting in your, in your house, um, Chris. Am I allowed to divulge the location of your secret um, secret, secret lair? lair? Like Batman? Yeah. Well, it's a bit it's a bit like that one. We had to come through a series of darkened alleyways to get here. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure that you led me around in in a circle just yeah. just to kind of uh, sure. put me off the scent in case I ever came back here during the light. <laughs> We're actually sitting in your in your secret lair. It's more of a bungalow. It's it is a bungalow actually. It's what what I would call a bungalow. Do you do you have bungalows? The concept of bungalows yes, out we do. here. Yeah. Yes, we do. It's more Californian than East Coast. But yeah, yeah. This is uh, no, we're in uh, Harwich, Massachusetts, which is Cape Cod. Which, if you look Cape Cod, it's like an arm. Yeah. And we're right there in the elbow. Okay. But you know where you're going tomorrow. Am I going to the bicep or the, or the, the armpit? You're going to the armpit. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's Wood's Hole. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's always been my ambition to go to the armpit of wherever I go. So, so, so tell us about this this tour. Well, I'm on, I'm on tour, which sounds like I'm a rock star, doesn't it? I haven't got a T-shirt with all the dates on the back, but yeah. I, think, I think I should, really. I, I feel like I'm on tour, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're kind of like a groupie of some sort, aren't you? I prefer roadie to groupie. Yeah, Yeah, roadie. So, yeah, so I'm on a a tour and I'm um, basically doing a cycle tour on a little fold-up bicycle just because it's more fun than doing doing it on a regular bicycle. It's perfectly functional. It's perfectly functional. It goes, you know, can get up to, you know, know, 10 miles an hour at least, even with, with a tent. 
So I've got, I've got a, um, this fold-up bicycle, so I've got to um, Logan Airport. In Boston? In Boston, being, yeah, sorry, yeah, being a bit like a snail, you know, you can kind of, I've uh, got my, every, all my belongings or my home on this right. on this bicycle right. Right. came out of a suitcase right. in the lobby of the hotel and there I was. So did you stay in Boston? No, I stayed um, just to the west of Boston, a place called Acton. Acton? Yeah, which is um, maybe about 20... Next to Concord, yeah. Next to my town where I live. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Two towns over from Groton. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I, I went there because um, I'm starting this cycle from Concord. So I started that yesterday. Right. And I'm um, um, cycling. So, so I'm going to stop you there? Yeah. Concord. 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 Okay. Concord. Say con- again? Concord. Concord. So Concord is the birth of the American Revolution? It is, and that's why my cycle is called American Revolutions, because it's kind of um, following the, the story, the tour. the tour of the American Revolution from loosely. Concord. Yeah, very loosely, yeah. You know, I'm not going to get shot or anything like that, so I didn't, I didn't want to go into <laughs> well, the... we don't know yet. <laughs> well, we don't know. It's early days. It's early days. So i got to stop you and tell you that this is a unique experience here. Yeah. Because I have never interviewed anyone in person, ever. Ah, there you so go. So I'm getting over my social anxieties. Yeah. So we're just, we'll, yeah. we'll move forward. Which is, which is just as well, because you're not wearing any clothes. <laughs> and I, I presume that's how you interview everyone. <laughs> it, it wasn't just a special, special case. I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, so I'm starting off in Concord, where the first shots of the... Um, the shot heard around the world. Indeed. It's a very loud one. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first shots of the American Revolution started, and I'm finishing in Yorktown, um, which is pretty much the last battle of the... Um, right. Of the whole yeah. of the whole story, and in between, I'm sort of uh, going bit of an East Coast tour um, right. down, you know, through Washington and Delaware and right. Philadelphia, etc., and yep. uh, ending up in so, Richmond, Massachusetts, through Rhode Island, yeah, yeah, and then on to Long Island, on New York, uh, New York, Delaware, and then Delaware, New Jersey, Delaware, yeah. yeah, and then into Virginia, yeah, and then um, so right. going to going to Richmond and then on to Yorktown and then right. eventually yeah. flying back to Boston out of yeah. uh, out of Richmond. So at how the many end miles of is that? It's about eight eight hundred something along those lines. Yeah, well, it seems longer than that, but I guess yeah. not. Yeah. Well, I hope it's not longer. So you've got you're going to do this how many days? It's just over two weeks. So it's fourteen days. Well, a bit longer because it's um you know two two weeks plus two weekends, uh, three weekends actually. So, so sixteen, about eight, about seventeen, eighteen days altogether. So you're shooting for like 40, 50 miles a day. Yeah, which, yeah, which is doable. Yeah. So you're looking at three to four hours on the bike a day. Yeah, something along those lines. You know, probably a, a six or seven hour day involving you know stopping along the way at various places, etc. So you know. Given our conversation mm. about my adventure a couple of weeks ago, where we drove across the mid, the, uh, the western states for no good reason, yeah, um, and all the fun and weird stuff that happened with that, you know, what's the manifesto? What's the reason for you know perfectly stable old guys like us to to go out and do these sort of adventures, right? Whether it's running related or bicycle or anything, right? Well, I think it's just that. You know, the spirit of, of adventure you tend to suppress when you've um, you know got a family, etc., and you've got a you've got things that you have to do. I mean, now I'm at the point in my life where I've um, you know my kids have left home. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife you know, doesn't want to do this type of thing, so she's quite happy um, staying at home. 
um, and you know, enjoying a bit of time without me. And um, and then I just sort of pursue those things that I think will be interesting and uh, exciting, meeting lots of interesting people like yourself. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, so so it's interesting because we have the you know, we have the what I'm hearing is we have the time, yeah, and the means, yeah, and sort of the experience level, so it doesn't scare the hell out of us, yeah. to go and do these things, yeah, um, and yeah. we have the right attitude, I guess, is, to, is is right. But one of the things when I was going through my uh, sort of goals, right, mm. so I'm one of those self evaluative people, and I every once in a while I'll said here's. You know, here's, here's what I want to do this year. Which whatever, is why not right? only you're naked, but you're lying on a couch. Right, self-evaluating myself. <laughs> yeah, which, like, by the way, is illegal in Rhode Island. Is it? Oh, so well, I won't, I won't mention it. Yeah, don't do that I won't when mention you go through uh, Rhode yeah, Island. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things I, I came up with this year was I want to have adventures. Right? Yeah, I want, yeah. I want to have adventures because yeah. I believe yeah. you can learn a lot from that. It's yeah. very mind you know, broadening, right? Mm-hmm. So they always say travel broadens the mind. Yeah. And it's but not adventures, travel, it's the people. It it's is. The places. But adventures don't need to be massive, you know, they right. don't need to be epic. They, you know, they, a lot of people are doing these kind of micro adventures now. I should have never right. seen those. You know, there's a guy who's written a book on it where it's encouraging people even to have an adventure like in their own neighborhood, you mm. know, one like at the weekend rather than just sitting in and watching the TV. To take a trip with a camping uh, kit, you know, cycle out 50 miles, camp somewhere you've never actually been before, and then cycle back and back into work on Monday. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that um, that spirit of, you know, adventure, discovery, all that type of thing. Right. And I think, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the, I, I see this in You're you. You're wrong. I'm see, I see this in you, is you have the travel mindset, hmm. right? Where you're going in open-minded. You're not trying to be prescriptive, mean, i got to be here by two, i got to stay in this place. You know, you're going in and saying, hi, I'm here. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. What are we going to do? Right? Yeah. And you have to do that. Mm. Uh, because things will never go the way you thought they were going to go. Precisely. You, might, you, may, <laughs> you know, you may not end up in the place that you anticipated ending up. But, you know, does that really matter? You know, um, for day day by day, I mean, rather than at the end of the it's trip. It's the journey. It's the journey, yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's, the, it's the adventure of doing it. You know, the, um, the trip I did last year, when I cycled along the River Danube, you know, I didn't know where I was going to stay each day. I had my right. tent and, uh, right. and I had a rough idea of how far I believed I would get. But, you know, other things come along or you... Right. A bit of you know serendipity or whatever you find some place that you didn't even know or hadn't even read about and yeah. uh, you know it turns out to be a really interesting place. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to take those side trips too. You got to yeah. you know you have to be open to the uh, yeah the, the universe pointing you in certain directions. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. take people up on that. Yeah, um, but I mean you've been all around the world. I've been all around the world, and there's certain universals hmm. that are out there. You know, people are people for the most part. Yeah. And right. people are good generally. Yeah, and, that's they're, the, that's and, they, and they're glad to see you, yeah. and they they want to talk to you and learn about you. So, hmm. yeah, I don't know if you found that as well, but I found that most places I've been, people are people are people. Yeah, and you, even you get your good and you get your bad people, right. and just everywhere, you know. But yeah. I mean, I've generally found that people are willing to help. You know, if you've got a problem, they'll they'll you know generally try and help you out of the situation. <laughs> And, um, you know, you just sort of bump into people. I mean, I was um, on, a, on a ferry today. Um, I was, took a ferry from Plymouth over to uh, uh, Provincetown. And, uh, you know, the just I, I had my bicycle. So the bicycle is actually a very yeah, good, interesting talking point. Yeah, that's a great point, right? conversation starter. Yeah, because yeah. it's, a, it's a fairly unique, I mean, it's not a unique bicycle, but it's something you don't see every day, certainly not in right. America. Yeah, so. I usually bring a monkey. 
Do you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw the monkey in the back room. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just a you know friend of yours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the monkey on your back. I, 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 I read that book once, and, you know. So, so, so. Um, but, yeah, you know, t- taking the bike um, and also travelling alone, I think, was, is also, you know, from my perspective, it seems to help because it forces you to speak to people. Mm. And also people feel more... Um, you know, approachable to come in to, to speak to you because you know, you know, like a clique or a group or anything. Yeah. So, you know, so on the ferry today, you know, some people looking at the bike, they um trying to work out who the bike belonged to because, you know, there's 100 people on the ferry or whatever. And then this, uh, these people came over and they said, is this your bike? You know, they want to hear the story about the bike, you know, yeah. You know, British handmade bike, etc. All those those types of stories. You know, how far, how close, you know, how much does it fold into? Folds into a suitcase, and uh, right. and you get you know the stories about you know, yeah. Fact, you know, they always say things like you know, coming back to our earlier point. Yeah, I'd really like to do something like that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. there's just there seems to be something that just stops people from doing that. Right. And you just got to say, right, well, why not? Why don't let's, you? Let's, yeah. let's, let's just do it. You know, yeah. why not? Yeah. 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 I mean, because, yeah, we get full-time jobs and yeah. families and all that stuff. And you still, you know, it doesn't take a lot. Anybody can squeeze a week out of their schedule and get mm-hmm. to do something fun. Yeah, it's you right. Do some adventure, learn something, meet some people. And that's what I like about traveling, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I travel for work, you travel for work. But that's what I like, because you get these mini-adventures, yeah. right? Yeah, That just sort of serendipitously, dipously. Uh, wow. And that as well. And that, too. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. So that's that bureaucrats. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. What have we got here? We've got Entitled. This is a plug for Entitled Beer Company. From of, either Ipswich e- or Hingham. Yeah. We get, depending upon whether we're talking about whether it's brewed by or um, crafted by. So obviously the guys in Hingham, they developed the concept. Mm-hmm. and they, It was executed by the guys in so, yeah. Ipswich. Well, they were the, uh, you could have the marketing guys and the manufacturing guys. Yeah. But no, I find that... No matter what, where you're traveling, you got to have that right attitude. you got to be open and friendly to people. You yeah. Know? You can't go, go through it feeling... And you can't have airs. You can't have airs and graces. Right. You, know, you um, integrate yourself with the people that you're with. And, yeah. you know, you're no better or worse than any of the people yeah. that you're working with or dealing yeah. with. And, you know, people, people pick up on that. You know, they pick up on the fact that you're, uh, you know, somebody that, you know, they might want to spend some time with and... Well, they can sense it, you know. They yeah. can sense it through your body language and your attitude and, mm. and what you say. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, I've got some great stories. Just had, you know, the best stories. Typically, you start in bars. But uh, so the other thing I want to talk to you about was um, was trust. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm serious, right? Yeah. So you, you know, this whole podcast world, you're under a pseudonym, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of people we are, that are in our sort of friend circle, they're under a pseudonym, right? Mm. And I had this interesting experience last week when I was, or, yeah, last week. <laughs> it's all kind of blurring together oh, on me, but where they had that 5K at the conference I was at. Okay, yeah. And yeah. so now I'm kind of in my element, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. the guy, right? Yeah, so, you're the man. You know, I've always tried to keep a Chinese wall between that stuff that mm. I do with social media and with running and the other stuff which you know puts bread on the table and and mm. and when I first started doing the running back in the 90s I almost felt like I had to keep it separate mm. and not let anybody know about it because it was it was almost like you know 
being a drug addict or something. Like being yeah. a drug addict, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. what do you mean you don't want to come to dinner with us? Well, I got to go do some sixteen hundreds down the track, right? Yeah. You know, you're like an aberrant individual. Yeah, you're, you're outside the tribe. And they obviously thought sixteen hundreds, you know, some sort of performance enhancing yeah. pills, yeah, some sort of sixteen hundred <laughs> milliliters. Yeah. 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 So I always sort of kept that separate, but I'm, but yeah. I'm wondering whether or not it's converging now. Right. I think so because a lot of my workmates, um, you know, I, when, when uh, you know, a lot of my workmates know that I'm doing these types of things and they're very interested in um, hearing about it. You know, so I give them my uh, <coughs> Facebook details or my, um, you know, details on my Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you know, that, that's, that's fine. Um, I think you know, from my perspective, it's really more, um, you know, if somebody I didn't, you know. Somebody like a you know a future employer or something was um, right. you know, digging through or you know digging through the details. You know, I don't want to every aspect of my personal life kind of uh, right. laid open to to somebody who I hadn't yeah. kind of accepted into my um, you know friend groups, so to speak. But you know, now I think um, you know definitely you know my my workmates were right. following my uh, my adventures and uh, updating yeah. the. Their comments and things like that. So yeah, is. See, what what yeah. I never wa- really wanted to happen was to be in a meeting somewhere and have somebody say, you know, you had time to go run ten miles this morning. You didn't mm. have time to do this, mm. right? So I didn't want to have that appearance of conflict between mm. the endurance sports and this other stuff that I'm doing, but and 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 the actual job itself that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but in reality, in these this day and age, it all blurs together. Well, if you think about it now, I mean, it's probably always been the case, but certainly now, employers are looking for people who have transferable skills, obviously. Yeah. But also, you know, do they have that get up and go? Do they have um, a drive or a passion or or something? Because, you know, people with passion are likely to be passionate about their work as much as any other aspect of yeah. their of, yeah. their, of yeah. their life. So... I think, you know, these types of things, um, people yeah. are very interested. In fact, I got one job, I'm sure, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I've been working with the same company for about 25 years, but um, lots of different uh, jobs within that. Uh, the, guy, the guy who employed me um, when I moved to a new role, you know, he was a very big sort of um, guy into adventure, you know, did lots of sort of stuff with the army and um, big canoe races, you know, like 150 miles canoeing down yeah. the Thames, that type of thing. You know, so he seemed to be more interested in, uh, you know, my uh, social life and my uh, running and cycling, etc., yeah. than, uh, yeah. you know, than anything yeah. else, you know. Yeah. He wanted to know, you know, is he getting somebody that's got, you know, a passion and drive for something? Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. I've had the opposite happen where I'm interviewing mm. someone. Yeah. And they've dug enough that they've found me. Okay. And they start asking me questions about the stuff and I just... I'd stop them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, you know, more and more people are utilising so, new technology so, and social media to, to, you know, get a bit more background in addition to what they might already have about people. Yeah, so. well, on the social media side, this whole thing with podcasting mm. and all the, you know, the writing that I do, I find that has been very useful for mm. me. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. Um, just in your work? Yeah, just yeah. Last, last week I was at this conference and they... Mm. They do some sort of podcast, and I'm listening to this podcast, and I'm going, you guys are using the wrong software, all right? Yeah, yeah. So I told them what software to use, you know, how to process the files and that yeah. kind of stuff, so that was kind of funny. But I'm thinking, you know, then the epiphany hit me is that the reason why hmm. 
you, I've been separating these things in my life. It was not because they're, they care about it. It was because I care about yeah. it. Yeah. And I lack the trust right. to merge the two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think I'm going to try and sort of try and bring those worlds together a little bit. At yeah. least the endurance athletics and the, uh, but I also didn't want to be that guy, and you know that guy. Yeah. That guy who shows up on Monday morning and, you know, with the... With Says, the, you know, I do this. You know, I, I ran a marathon. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, let me yeah. show you the pictures, and here's yeah. my medal, and here's my shirt. And like, really? Yeah. Don't yeah. care. Yeah. Which is quite surprising, because you've got all your medals laid out here on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I presume I'm supposed to be impressed by this, Chris. No, no, they're on my phone. Yeah. I'll show you. I'll show you. There you go. Oh, look at that's that. My, that's my look office. at that, yeah. Brilliant. But in my defense, no one ever goes to my office. There you are. Except me, like, once every other week. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right in that. You don't want to drive these things down people's throats. But... Um, if somebody asks me, you know, what did I do this weekend? You know, or what are my plans for my holiday right. or my vacation, right. etc.? Yeah. Then I say, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then um, it then gives, it's in their court to say, right. well, actually, I'm really interested in that. You know, how yeah. could I find out more? And I'll just say, well, you know, just follow me on Facebook or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. you'll, you'll see the photos and everything. So it's not kind of, you know, pushing something on somebody. But people tend to be interested if um, if they think that, you know. You yeah, and you just got to watch them, right? Yeah. When, watch when the eyes glaze over, right? Precisely. And you got to know how to get them there because yeah. what I do compared to most people's frame of reference mm. is kind of out there, right? Yeah. And what you do compared yeah. to most people's frame of reference, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people think it's, um, you know, the, the work of some sort of, you know, athletic genius. Right, when, yeah. When in reality, anyone... Could if they turn their mind to it, could could do this. You know, do it. if you can ride, you know, twenty miles, you can ride fifty miles. You know, right. just a question of keeping going yeah. and uh, just having the right, you know, food and yeah. you know, getting a bit more. And, uh, and that's that's a lesson that I keep teaching myself over and over again. And I think that's mm. the most valuable thing I take away from endurance sports is you can do so much more than you think mm. you can. Yeah, I've never gotten to the point where my body said, "No, you can't do this anymore." Mm. You know, it's always your mind. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, it's absolutely right. But, um, you know, people don't tend to push themselves to that degree unless they've got a particular reason, yeah. for, reason for doing it. So, yeah. you know, to be, people think that, you know, these things are <coughs> superhuman when the reality is that, you know, they're, they're things that anyone could do. And, um, you know. See, I was thinking about that, too, and it hmm. almost reminds me of the funny, what they're calling the entitled generation, right? Hmm. So my kids and your kids were... Hmm. Everybody got a medal. It was all about self-esteem, right? You don't want to ruin the poor child's self-esteem, right? Mm. And that almost, it seems to me, that keeps people from trying. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, uh, during the um, 1980s, more and probably the early 90s, um, they went from a, a culture of school about, you know, everyone trying to do their best and, uh, you know, the sports teams to win and that type of thing for... Yeah. The key thing being that everyone yeah, you know, yeah. T- takes part and ev- everyone's, a, everyone's a winner, yeah. which, which I think is fine. But at the end of the day, in life, not everyone is a winner all the time, right? right? And yeah. you've got to prepare yourself for, uh, you know, dis- disappointment. I mean, yeah. I might be a, well, I might be classed as a winner in some aspects, but, you know, I'm definitely not you know, in others. Right, but it's not disappointment so much as you have to be able to use your grit. 
Yeah. And that's what endurance sports teaches you yeah, is yeah. to use your grit, right? You've yeah. gone as far as you think you can go. Well, but guess what? It's not. Get up and go more. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. that's, that's life, right? Yeah. You're going to lose four times out of five. Yeah. It's the person who tries the next time that, that, yeah. that gets there, right? Yeah. So really, uh, you don't have to be smart and good looking like yourself. Well, I mean, it's obviously going to help. <laughs> and very tall, too. Very yeah. tall. Yeah, yeah, very tall in the way of my, my stories about my good lookingness. <laughs> um, so let's wrap it up. What can people do to have an adventure? They just need to. We know why. Yeah. What's the how? The how? Well, if you think, let's think about the obstacles to having an adventure. Yeah. You know, what will people, you know, time? Wives. Time, wives, okay. Wives might be number one. Yeah. <laughs> Time might be number two. <laughs> you know, money, money. The, the, the means. You know, it's, it's the yeah. means, whether it's the time or the thing. But an adventure doesn't need to cost. You know, an adventure, you know, like these kind of mini, mini adventures. You can go and do something. You can sort of camp rough out, you know, somewhere. Go for a cycle. I mean, the cycle, right? I mean, I'm... Um, Obviously, this particular adventure is costing me a bit of money because I'm flying to America, flying to America to do it. But if it, if I wasn't flying to America to do it, then it would actually be cheaper for me than actually living my normal life. Yeah, you know, I'm spending, um, you know, basically because I'm relying on the um, goodwill of people like yourself, Kindness Chris. Of others. Yeah. yeah, sponging some might, <laughs> sponging some might. Sponging dot com. Yeah, there you go. But um, you know, the day to day costs of you know going on a bike tour. You know, you've got a bicycle, you've got no transportation yeah. costs, you're yeah. sleeping in a tent, you know, it's, you know, next to nothing or warm showers, which is nothing, you know, other than, you know, goodwill and um, other stuff. You know, if I was at home, I'd be um, going and I'd be, you know, spending, you know, 20 quid at the canteen at work or something. And, yeah. you know, actually, it doesn't need to cost any cost anything, particularly on, you know, biking yeah. or running or something along those yeah. lines. And, and if you look around, I mean, you draw a 50-mile circle around where you live, I'm sure mm. there's some place you can go to have an adventure. Yeah. And then, you know, coming back to the, the, the wife thing, it's it's more a question of, um, you know, if if, the, if your partner's interested in doing similar things as you, then obviously, you know, d- yeah. discuss doing what you want to, what you, your ideas and what you want to do. If they're not that sort of person or they're not interested in that, you know, my wife doesn't like cycling, for example. You know, it's really a question of, um, you know, looking at, you know, what, what each partner um, wants to, to get out of things now. My wife knows I like to do these types of things, so she allows me to do them because yeah. she can spend that time doing, you know, what she might want to sure, do. So, sure. you know, we're not in every each other's but pockets. You can combine them too, right? So, yeah. so like when we were out a couple of weeks ago, I ran mm. my race and she disappeared and did her thing. Right? Precisely. So you take the rental car, I'll see you Sunday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, and that's fine. Yeah. yeah. So it don't have to be expensive. Don't have to take a lot of time. But it should be. What are the attributes of good adventure? It can't okay. be one hundred percent known. No, you've got to have that. Yeah, you've you got that potential that something could go wrong. Yeah, you need some chaos. Yeah, precisely. Like this bike thing. You know, I've got a, a fold up bike. It's got sixteen inch wheels. You know, where can you get a sixteen inch wheel tire? You know, and not in a regular bike shop. Yeah. You know, you've got to fix your own punctures along the way. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. You don't necessarily know where you're going to go or whether things are going to go yeah, correctly. You've got to laid out your exact roads and times and all that stuff. Precisely. Right? And I don't do that either, just because that's not how my brain. You've got to allow the you know the kind of the nuances and the kind of um, serendipity serendipity of things that come along. Um, so uh, an interesting one on this one. I was um, at the ferry port today. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, this is probably, you know, a planning thing. You know, I, I didn't realise you had to get a ticket the day before or book it online. And the lady there said, you know, I've got to, um, you know, the, the, the ferry is full, essentially. Yeah. And there was a couple in the line there that I've been talking to. And we've been chatting about, you know, all sorts of stuff about what we were doing and all those types of things. You know, they said, well, you know, if we don't uh, get this ferry, you know, let's just drive. Let's just drive around there. You know, we'll drive around the whole Cape and we'll we'll park up in Provincetown and, you know, we'll do it anyway. Yeah, we'll you know, do it for fun. Precisely, we'll do it for fun. And so, you know, having those types of conversations and uh, talking to people, that, that type of thing might, you know, can happen. Quite yeah, some of the connections are, are good. Are good. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good stuff. Got anything you want to sell? Nothing. Nothing. Not even my body. Not even your monkey. <laughs> All right, thanks. Cheers, Chris. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Uncertainty, trust, and the universal mastermind. Our unrealistic need to be able to stop time and know what the truth is. Friends, I'm no expert in these affairs. I can only claim to be fairly well-read and an experiment of one. So in this piece, I don't expect to put forth any answers or even that many opinions. I'll try to relate and summarize some of the big thoughts that I've been mulling over in my own practice and some of the common lines that may, may or not be drawn through it. Humans, very much like you and I, have been grappling with the unknowable for many thousands of years. We are hounded and worried by the unknowable answers to the big questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Is this all there is? We don't like the uncertainty. It scares us. When we can't find an answer, we worry, we fret. When we can't find an answer, we typically make one up. We give the unknowable faith-based answers, whether it is faith in numbers, magical beings, or chaos theory. Our aversion to uncertainty flies in the face of experience. We like to resolve issues and find closure and find certainty, have everything bolted down, and then when everything is known and sorted out, only then do we feel safe, but then we're bored. <laughs> we are counter-driven to seek change and movement. We're restless souls. This duplicity of thought and action between uncertainty and adventure really defines us as a species. We want the adventure, but we want it to be a safe adventure with bumpers and pads in case we fall. It's not just rocks that have inertia. Systems will resist change, and when they are changed, they will try to snap back to the original state. Name any person we hold up as an example of greatness, and you will more than likely discover that they went counter to all the wishes and forces of their contemporaries. They stayed with their vision against the inertia of their systems. Our aversion to uncertainty keeps us from opportunity sometimes. We shy away from uncertainty, but that is the only direction where true change comes from. Can we learn to embrace or even just endure uncertainty long enough to find new paths? Can we practice using uncertainty and fear as a compass to find opportunities for growth? I think so. I think that as we go through our self-analysis throughout our lives, we should take note of the directions that scare us. These directions scare us because we don't know what to do and we don't know how to do it. And when you don't know what or how, you should be able to fall back on why. 
We should take the time to explore those dark and scary turns and ask better questions. What if I were to do this and why? Don't be afraid to shine a light down those dark paths and lean into the uncertainty. You can cultivate that talent of living with and leaning into uncertainty using the compass of your why. The bigger question is how do we tap into something larger? Is there some universal soup of enlightenment that we can draw from? Many people have believed, and the idea is coming back in vogue, that there is something beyond our perception that perhaps we can tap into. Some will call it God with a capital G. Some will call it the universe or the universal mastermind. And the idea, this is not a new idea, that there is a sentient force that connects all things. Furthermore, we mortals can access this force through the proper approach and practice. Napoleon Hill talked about the universal mastermind in the early 1900s. And more recent authors talk about the secret. And the recent wave of uh, self-helpy pseudoscientists, they reach for things like resonating wavelengths and quantum, uh, the mind as quantum energy, which having a working knowledge of physics sounds like a lot of our great charlatan tradition of using sciencey words to explain mystical concepts, but don't let me get in the way of your higher resonating thought patterns. Again, we try to explain the unknowable by making stuff up, faith, or forcing a framework of what we do know, science terms. We just don't like uncertainty. And to summarize, the concept is that this universal force exists, and you can get what you want by learning how to ask the universe for it. Huh. Okay. So how do you ask? Well, there are different nuances, but in most cases it comes down to the practice of some sort of mindfulness. And in the religious, this is prayer. In the secular, this is meditation or similar mental practice. And this is the part that is cool and applicable. Without having to hang it with trappings, it seems that we can influence our mind, body, and emotions through this practice. The extension of this, the leap that some will make, is that we can also influence other people, external events, and even time itself with our practice. You can be the judge of that. What doesn't seem to be as much of a leap is that if we can influence our own mind, body, and emotion with this practice, we are actually changing our destiny. Because we have changed, because we are different and maybe better, things do come into our lives that otherwise would not have. We are, in essence, creating the vessel that will allow us to be filled, and that is the secret. And our technology is catching up. We can actually see inside the brain while people practice these altered mental states. And we're starting to understand the complex interplay of chemicals and physiology in that big hunk of wet meat between our shoulders. Let's tie together some of the strings of how to get into this state of mental influence. So if you remember our discussions of the of a little ways back of the recent book, The Rise of Superman, there are certain times and conditions that allow us to rewire our brains to enter a state known as flow in which we can do amazing things. And when this is measured, they can see the change in brain chemistry and the selective activation of different regions of the brain 
to support these altered states. And what happens when we quiet our minds? Well, for one thing, we quiet the thinking parts of our brains, and that allows us to access the older physiology of the brain. We gain access to the reptilian brain, the automated systems that control the glands and the basic functions. And if we do it right, we can manipulate those to gain different effects. We are also selectively shutting down parts of our brain that do higher-order thinking, like keeping track of time. And when we come out of these states, we can essentially and truthfully report transcendence and time travel and loss of self because we're shutting down those parts of our mind. And this feels a lot like we communed with some higher force. And I don't know, maybe we did. You know, those are the doors of perception. Through these practices, we can also consciously change our brain chemistry, which is a big benefit for us modern humans whose brains are constantly on and producing stress hormones most of the time. And this is probably a healthier alternative to than uh, using pills to do it. To take this a step further, though, through consistent practice, you can rewire your brain to act and work differently, the circuitry. And even beyond that, science is showing that you can start switching specific genes on and off in your DNA to make lasting changes in your physiology in response to the practice. So what does this mean? It means we still don't have the answers, and there may very well be some universal force that ties us all together, or it may be just a ghost in the machine, but we can change ourselves, and that's a pretty good start, no matter what you believe. So how do you tap into it? Well, the simple answer is through quieting the mind, either through prayer or meditation, or hey, why not double dip and do peripheral meditation? Focus on the beatitude or the breathing, and let your cognitive thoughts go. You're attempting to be present in the current moment. As you become present in that moment, you begin to realize that you are actually stepping outside of time. As you shut down your cognitive brain, you allow your brain chemistry and electricity to normalize. And you come out of these sessions relaxed and centered and calmer. And the extension of this in the quote-unquote self-improvement practice is to inject some change thoughts into these meditative states. And whether those are things you wish for, or affirmations, or visualizations of some future state, or things you want to not do anymore, in these states your, your, your mind is more receptive. In this way you can theoretically influence those sticky changes to your mind, body, and emotions that will in inevitably influence your circumstances. And that's it. That's what all it all boils down to when you take some of the mysticism out. You can meditate or pray your way into a better state, or at least a different state, through practice. And when you wrap an emotional trust around the process, it's quite effective. I.e., when you have trust or faith, when you believe in the process and the results, it removes resistance and change happens more easily. And I would caution you away from willy-nilly trying to reprogram yourself. You're, you're kind of messing around under the, um, under the hood here with your brain. You probably want to find someone you trust or has experience with this stuff, a coach, if you will. It's worth an investment of some experimentation if you're looking for a better state. And when we talk about nutrition and exercise and health, these things are all influenced by our mind. 
and we can cultivate that influence through practice. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Like I think I said last time, I might not have, but I'm cutting back on my training for September because of my crazy schedule. And I basically didn't run at all this week. I've got to get back on it because I'm putting on weight. I feel like crap, especially at my age. It doesn't take long to get out of shape again. It's pretty tenuous. With any luck, the time off will heal up all my bent and broken bits, and I'll be able to get a quality training cycle in during the fall and winter seasons. And now that my heart is fixed, I'd really like to load up some speed work and maybe get some of that pace back that I had a couple years ago. And if I look at my own pace tables, the ones I wrote from the Marathon BQ plan, the paces should be quite doable for me. The BQ paces I need now are almost a full minute off what I needed when I first qualified in the fall of 1997. But I'm also terrified (laughs) when I start thinking about this because what if I can't do it? What if I just get injured again? What if I just don't have the time in my life or the ability and I have to give up halfway through? And I guess that's what everybody thinks, right? And I won't know until I try. And I'm also concerned that if I commit to a hard training cycle, it will suck up all the free oxygen in my life and keep me from being successful in other areas of my life that need attention. And again, everybody has these thoughts. But if I kick off a cycle in October, that would line up with a race in the first couple weeks of January, which there's a lot of races right then. Maybe I'll do that. And then I could schedule our third annual Groton Marathon as a last long training run around Christmas. That would work. See, this is how my brain works. I can never just let it drop. It would also get me into uh, some decent shape for the Thanksgiving turkey trots, the races. As I was working through in my brain how to survive and thrive this month of heavy travel, I was thinking a lot about how to make the interactions that I have with people more valuable. I usually just put on a smile and work the room, but that's a very thin emotionally a very emotionally thin way of engaging people. A veneer of bonhomme does not produce any value. And if you're putting on an act, unless you're a really good actor, people sense that, and it's off-putting. And I ask myself the question, why do you have that sort of light, insincere avatar approach to these interactions? And the answer I got was because in these business relationships, I don't really trust the people I'm interacting with. And essentially, I'm interacting with my guard up. I'm talking and smiling with one hand on my gun, metaphorically, (laughs) unless I'm in Houston. (laughs) Then I asked the next question, which was, why don't you trust these people? What are you afraid of? And the surprising answer that popped up was that I'm I'm afraid of them, right? I'm afraid of looking stupid. I'm afraid of getting hurt. And if you think about that, I have these smiling, friendly conversations with my industry peers that are full of content, but also based in fear. And I thought to myself, gee, that's not a very abundant way to approach life. Then, okay, stay with me, stay with me. I asked the next question, which was, what could happen if you weren't afraid of getting hurt, if you trusted these people, if you leaned in, so to speak? And what could this bring to you? 
I'm a work in process, but I have been practicing trying to be much more authentic in these interactions. In many cases, it really changes the value and the outcome of the interaction. Instead of trying to think one step ahead in the conversation and figure out what you think they want to hear or what you should say in this situation, you just let go. You just let go of it. Step outside the conversation and say what's important. It's much less stressful, and being calm in the moment can be sensed by people, and they're attracted to that. And I'll tell you a story, a couple of stories. (laughs) I was sitting at the table having breakfast last week, and at the table was a CEO who was one of the keynote speakers at the event. And I'm chatting with folks, and I chat with this guy. We're talking about mutual friends and such, just being chill. And he starts to lock in on me, and he asks me, you know, what do you do? And instead of the usual, I'm an executive at XYZ company and run the ABC group and we sell one, two, three type of safe answer, I said, I like to read, write, speak. I love endurance sports and new ideas. And I'm currently an executive at XYZ company. And that, my friends, is not an answer anyone expects. And says volumes about who I am as a person and the true value that I bring to the world beyond the company and the industry. And after a few more minutes of chat, he says, well, you've got to talk to John Doe, who runs my Americas team, because we need someone to run the eastern part of the country so we can grow this business. Now, let's be clear. I I haven't heard anything else from this guy since. And I have no idea if I'd be interested or even want to work for these folks. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is I wasn't pitching this guy or trying to impress him or really even paying all that much attention to him, but he was attracted to me by my difference, my authentic attitude. And he felt my detached attitude of abundance and heard something different and valuable in the way I interacted. And this was a demonstration of what the mystics might consider the law of attraction. But more importantly, it was a demonstration of how we can modify our own selves by asking good introspective questions and then reflecting that self-aware attitude out into the world, or perhaps the universe. So ponder on this as you're out and about this week. The way we think influences how we manifest to others. How are you manifesting in your world? What are you programming yourself to attract? And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Since we're early in the recording, I'll just fix that. Never, never ceased.